to me, the, the key for writing John and also talking to Eric about John is that villains don't think they're villains. I'm talking to Alexandra Cunningham, the showrunner on the new Bravo series, Dirty John. The Eric she's talking about is Eric Bana, who plays the title character, who she wanted for the show and fought to get. I definitely think that John developed some kind of superiority complex in conjunction with a sort of persecution complex, like that no one's as smart as I am and also everyone's out to get me. And so therefore anything I do to sort of save myself and get what I need is justified. It's 1945, Hitler is defeated. America is looking to outsmart a new enemy, the Soviet Union. To advance in rocketry, aviation, and chemical weapons, America recruits scientists and engineers who fueled the war machine of another nation, Nazi Germany. Operation Paperclip brought the Third Reich's most ingenious and often villainous men to the United States. The War Department thought if we let them go back to Germany, some other nation will pick them up and use them against us. His file said he was 100% Nazi, a dangerous type. Somehow, the file was changed and he came in. I'm Michael Ian Black. Join me and historian Monique Laney on this series, Paperclip, funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Time Studios in support of the Emmy-eligible original drama series, Hunters, starring Al Pacino and Logan Lerman. Available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, I'm Chris Gofford, and this is a special bonus episode of Dirty John. For those of you unfamiliar with the term, the showrunner is not just the head writer, but the arbiter of a thousand production details, large and small, from casting to costumes. Basically, the CEO of a corporation that forms for a few harried months and then dissolves. Cunningham's first job in the role was the American version of Prime Suspect. One of the things I, I loved about the Dirty John material was it was actually an opportunity to write a lot of the different kinds of stuff that I've written in my career. There were, uh, there's procedural stuff in there, law enforcement procedural stuff. There's, you know, obviously the emotional twisted fairy tale version of it, which, you know, I mean, I always, soap seems to be kind of a dirty word in our business, but I actually think any story that has emotional stakes is a soap. Like, I, Claudius, is a soap. Uh, Saving Private Ryan is a soap. Cunningham spent six years writing for Desperate Housewives, and she sees parallels with Dirty John. When Desperate Housewives was good, it had a lot in common with this story, even though the story really happened in the sense that, you know, here's these women and they're on an emotional roller coaster tightrope and it's about love and it's about fear and all of the things that this story is about, except this really happened. The core of The Sopranos, the greatest show ever, is love and family and murder and fear and all of the things that this story has. So like, because maybe everything goes back to the Greeks. I don't know. I first met Alex Cunningham at Roscoe's House of Chicken and Waffles in LA just before she signed on. And from the beginning, we agreed on what I thought was an essential point. 
The series was not going to try to explain John Meehan. It was not going to put him on a couch with Dr. Freud in a search for childhood horrors that might serve to mitigate or justify his awfulness. I didn't think of Meehan as a man wearing a mask that concealed a wounded, more vulnerable, more authentic self. I thought of him as only masks, concealing total emptiness. I thought of the scene in The Invisible Man where the hero peels away his bandages and there's no one there. In the writer's room more than once, Cunningham made the point that one reason people want explanations for John Meehan is that it gives them the comforting illusion that he's somehow defendable against. People want to have John completely explained because if they, they think if they know the reasons behind his behavior, then that will help them avoid a person who behaves like that. Except, of course, obviously, you, you wouldn't know these things about your John if he came to you and, and tried to do the things to you that John did to women. You wouldn't know any of those things about that person, so it really wouldn't help you. I will feel sorry for you up until the point where you you injure someone else when you weaponize what happened to you. And so that was that was important to me to not feel um, like that's what we were doing is trying to, to elicit any sympathy for John, except perhaps as a child, because in episode five, we do do a little talking about how the con artist part of him came from his father who was very proud of possibly being related to famous mafia figures. Episode five of the TV series gives us a glimpse of John Meehan's childhood. It shows him under the influence of his father, a small-time crook who ran a card room and introduced young John to a variety of swindles. At one point, as they sit together at a restaurant, the dad passes the boy a shard of glass to bite into in a scheme to get money out of the owners. You know, so Alex really felt that John was a black hole, and I know you guys really felt that, but as a director, I couldn't really work on those. This is the director, Jeffrey Reiner. He's best known for his work on Friday Night Lights and The Affair. He's directing all eight episodes of Dirty John. I can't give an actor directions or, you know, play subtext if there's not subtext. So if you're just playing somebody who's an evil person then you're going to have a lousy performance. And so, you know, Eric and I would really discuss a lot, you know, what motivates this guy. And so you have to dig deep for that. So when we go back to episode five and we see his past, I think it's all right at that moment in that boy's life to feel sorry for him. But when you go to the future, it doesn't justify his behavior. It just gives you... You know, this is what he turned into. Are you bored? I'm bored. I can't stand being bored. Seems like we all have too much time to ourselves, but not enough to do with it. Not enough that's worthwhile. We could just keep scrolling to see if there's an actual end to our feeds, or we could take that device in our hands and do something fun. Use your phone to challenge your brain, escape to a fantastic place, and play. 
Best Fiends is a casual but stimulating problem-solving game that has you using your wits to save the cute bugs of Minutia from an invasion of greedy slugs. Minutia is a fun, colorful place full of cute characters that I need to collect to use strategically in solving challenging puzzles anytime I need a break. Plus, there are new theme challenges waiting for me every few weeks. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Director Jeff Reiner says that when he first met Alex Cunningham, their conversation focused on the series' point of view and how to transcend the conventions of a straight thriller. The normal approach to this material would be a thriller where the woman's looking over her shoulder the whole time. And that's not something that Alex and I were interested in. We were interested in kind of deconstructing it and telling it from different points of view. The most striking shift in point of view comes in episode seven, which is told from John Meehan's perspective. Here's Eric Bana, who plays Meehan, describing it. We get to see what he was doing for an hour before meeting Deborah on that first date that we enjoyed in episode one. We get to see what he was doing just before stealing the drugs that he was administering to a, a, a patient. We get to see how many women he was calling before he called Deborah the first time on that. You know, so it was it was a pretty raucous bawdy idea for an episode that, you know, we tried to have some fun with as well. And we realized that for those people who, you know, want to embrace the, the dark humor, that there was, there's a lot in Seven. He's in his RV in the middle of the, the, the desert being rejected by other women and packing Viagra into his pocket and doing drugs. And it's just, and we see him lying. We see him on the phone lying to people and one of the things I loved about Seven was, you know, John being on his own. That's, and I was fa- one of the things that fascinated me about this character was, um, which, you know, we, you allude to a little bit when you played the, the uh, audio from the wedding, is that he had no friends, which was really fascinating, you know, because some people claim to be lone wolves or claim to be sort of loners and stuff. But John, to me, was a true loner in amongst people. Reiner, the director, told me he spent a lot of time thinking about Travis Bickle, the violent loner from Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Reiner is also a fan of the director Billy Wilder and the darkly comic tone he brought to classic noir films like Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity. So tonally, I had to make sure that there was a sense of humor, which quite honestly, I got from you, from your, um, from your, the, the tone in which you read it. I don't know if it was purposeful or not, but I always felt like there was this slight ironic kind of take on the material. The real-life John Meehan was a con man and a sadist who hurt more people than we'll probably ever know. A creature of malevolence so pure, it's hard to think of analogs in my long experience of writing about very bad people. But nobody on the Dirty John series thought it would be interesting to portray him as a glowering papier-mâché villain. So he had to be charming and he had to be funny and he had to be, even in his evil had to be somewhat funny. Yeah, there is this character who might think he's in a Scorsese movie or he might think he's an ultimate villain. And so that will dictate what he says and what he does. You know, there's a scene where he 
goes to meet Toby at the door and Toby calls him out for being a liar. And around after take four, I told Eric to eat a sandwich while, while he's doing it. So there was this kind of cavalier attitude, you know, when he's telling him, he's kind of telling him all this dark stuff, you know, he's chomping on a sandwich. So to me, it just gave the character like that scene suddenly a nonchalance to like his evilness, which makes it even more evil. And then, but it does make it somewhat darkly funny. So and also he's uh, he's a predator having a meal. Yeah, well, I never thought of that thematically, but you're right. I mean, I'll let you. Some film school uh, students will write that essay. They might write that essay. <laughs> You can catch the premiere of Dirty John on Bravo at 10 p.m. on Sunday, November 25th. It's a production of Universal Cable Productions and L.A. Times Studios, and this is the last of three special episodes about its making. And here's a reminder that before it was a TV show, it was a work of journalism. You can find the original L.A. Times series plus 14 other pieces of narrative journalism in my new collection. It's called Dirty John and Other True Stories of Outlaws and Outsiders by Christopher Gofford, published by Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster.